From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Almost everyone these days seems to agree that political discourse in this country has gotten too heated. Disagreements are inevitable, of course, and everybody should be entitled to their own opinion. But researchers have found that the way we talk about people with whom we disagree is increasingly scornful, contemptuous, mocking, and even dehumanizing. And here's the dilemma. While most of us can see this happening and know it's not good for our society, many of us are still participating in it, sometimes without even really recognizing that we, too, have a problem with giving dignity to those with whom we disagree. Recently in Politico magazine, the journalist Amanda Ripley detailed an effort to change all of that. In 2022, a group based in Utah tested out a new tool designed to rate political rhetoric on a scale that starts with dignity and goes all the way up to incitements of violence. The group has plans to put this tool into the hands of people across the nation in the next two years, hopefully with enough success that dignity itself will be on the ballot in November of 2024. One of the key players in this effort is Tammy Pfeiffer. She's a former special education teacher, a grandmother, a former singer in the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square, a steadfast Republican, a former city council member in Logan, Utah, and the former education policy advisor for Utah Governor Gary Herbert. And she is deeply concerned with the way that we talk to one another and about one another in this very divided nation which is why she signed on as the Utah Demonstration Project lead for the Dignity Index. Tammy Pfeiffer, welcome. Matthew, thank you so much for having me on your program. One of the things that I think is just, (laughs) is just absolutely delightful about your family is that you and your husband have five grown children and they are members of, do I have five different political parties? How does that happen? Well, I like to call that a parenting win. <laughs> when you, you know, parents want to raise their children to be independent thinkers and to be their own individual selves. And uh, that's what they've done. So you have this super, I think, healthy dynamic and the, this diversity of political views in your family. And then you were in Governor Herbert's inner circle during the first part of the COVID pandemic. And it was during that time that you noticed that something had changed and it had changed. I think we all noticed it changing in our society, but you started noticing it even among members of your own family and the way that people were talking to one another around the dinner table. Well, you can't help but be affected by during that year, right? 2019, 2020, uh, about the politics happening before the pandemic. And when you have a lot of different viewpoints and you read or consume different media, uh, you have a different perspective on the same problem. And so when the pandemic hit, it just all of the, all of the situation with the pandemic, vaccines and masks, um, and all those different perspectives around that and opinions and media and facts or not facts, depending on how you looked at it, really exacerbated, uh, I think, the dialogue in the country and then as the microcosm. Yeah, we had some, we had some really intense 
conversations within members of my family. And you, for for a bit, you put the kibosh on political dis- discussions in your family, right? Well, we all agreed that year, uh, Thanksgiving that year, that it would be better if we did not talk politics. <laughs> and um, so we did not talk politics. And um, it was November of 2020, which is the whole year has been rather exhausting in the first place. But, you know, back to the time when we talked about politics a lot and we disagreed a lot and we had a lot of passionate um, discussions about it. But it, it did feel like to me, I wondered if there would ever be a time that we could talk about politics again. And uh, so, yeah, Thanksgiving 2020, no politics around the dinner table. You started your career as a special education teacher. And one of the things that you noticed during this period of time that we were just talking about was that a whole lot of adults were not speaking to one another with the same dignity that we that we expect and that we even enforce among our children. That had to have set off a lot of alarm bells for you. Well, when you look at what was happening during the pandemic, but even before that, people talk about bullying in the schools, right? We've got to do a better job of bullying in the schools. And, and one of my colleagues, uh, Tim Schreiber, visited a lot of schools as he started to organize the work of Unite. And he said at one school in particular, the students said, you know, Mr. Shriver, it's not the kids that are having the problem with bullying, it's the adults. And when you look at the country uh, during those years, just pre and during pandemic, the early pandemic years, there's a lot of bullying going on. So we expect one level of behavior, one standard of behavior for students in our schools and yet, when you turn on the news or read the paper or any social media, the example that we are setting for young people is not the greatest example. Tell me about how you found your way to this group, the group that you just mentioned, Unite. So in the governor's office, I uh, was his education policy advisor. And so we worked uh, mainly, I worked mainly on education issues. I was invited to a luncheon for the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and they were holding like a national meeting in Salt Lake City. And uh, Tim Schreiber was the keynote for that luncheon. And I knew, of course, about the work of Special Olympics. I'd never met Tim, and I had assumed that he was going to tell us about the work of Special Olympics. He did not. (laughs) He talked about this new project that he was uh, launching called Unite. And it was applying some of the lessons learned in Special Olympics about uh, treating all students and all student athletes and all all athletes in general with dignity, athletes with intellectual disabilities, with dignity, giving them opportunities. And then he also talked about the field of social and emotional learning, a field which he pioneered uh, 27, 28 years ago. This, this idea that we want to teach kids to problem solve, to have empathy, uh, to be able to work with people who are different than they are, to um, be able to disagree without being disagreeable is how they, they teach a lot of those lessons. And, and this field of social emotional learning, he, he said in this, in this speech he gave that day, what if we applied social emotional learning to politics? This light went off and I thought, this is the next thing I need to do. One of the things that a lot of researchers have been pointing out 
is that support for partisan violence in the United States right now is approaching levels that have been recorded in other nations at the cusp of civil conflict. For instance, one of the examples uh, that the Politico article brings up is uh, Northern Ireland during the ethno-nationalist conflict there that lasted from the 60s to late 90s and was marked by periods of lots of violence and and some terrorist acts. This is, these stakes are very high, aren't they? There was uh, one poll that we looked at a few months ago that came out in June of 2022 that asked, uh, asked citizens about their feelings on civil war. And one out of four respondents said that they felt the time would soon come where we had to take up arms against each other, which is terrifying. And here's the real problem. In the social media world, especially, there are a lot of incentives for people to speak with malice toward other groups. Politicians are finding it quite politically profitable. It's not just politically profitable. It's a lucrative business when you get clicks and likes and viewers um, for whatever program that you might be on that is full of contempt. And you incite, a lot of times you incite uh, violence. And if you asked some of these characters, or I should say these players involved, they say, I'm not inciting violence. I'm telling the truth. But when you look at the language that's being used, it can and often does incite violence. Let's talk about this index. Your group conceived of this as a way to help us address this this addiction, this contempt problem that Brooks has written about, particularly to identify when, when politicians are speaking in a way that robs others of dignity. And why don't we go through these? We should We should say... There are eight levels, and the smaller the number, the worse things are. So, so we want we want to stay away from ones, but l- let's actually let's start with what you're hoping we're all striving for: speech that aligns with a level eight. What what does a level eight mean? So, level eight is the top of the scale, and this is when you can say, "I love my group, but I can connect with almost any group." I can talk with anyone. I can work with anyone. I don't need to be right. And that's that's really one of the things you look for in this language is people give up their need to be right. This is like sainthood it's, level, right? It's, it's, Desmond Tutu, it's Desmond Tutu, right? It's very aspirational. But I think there are times when we can find ourselves, even when we're struggling, we can find ourselves in a variety of levels on this scale. And my best self on my best day I could find myself saying, you know what? <laughs> I'm not going to hate people today. I'm not going to condemn them. And I, I don't have to be right all the time. Even, even if it's just for today, I'm going to let go. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoot for an eight today. And I, I think inherent in what you just said is that there are these other levels. And let's sort of, we can kind of group in six and seven here that are, these are still good places to be, right? People still want to engage with others of different views, but 
even if they hold their views very passionately, but we're still in kind of a, a respectful place mostly, yes. right? Yeah. If I mean, if you're at a six or seven, that's fantastic. And the difference between those levels, the way I see it, is that at a six, it's like, I want to work with the other side because I want to find out, I'm curious about them. And I want to find out those areas that we agree on so that we can move forward. A seven is the same thing. I want to fully engage, but I want to find out those areas where we disagree so that I can understand why you feel differently. Then we make even more progress because now we've looked at those areas of disagreement and we know each other better. And we talk about these views that we hold differently and we're able to move forward. So a seven, we're kind of striving for empathy. A six, we're working for acceptance. It seems to be like right around level five, we're sort of moving toward begrudging acceptance. <laughs> like it's acceptance, but mm, it's hard. Yeah. If five is, I don't hate you. You you have the right to live here. You know, you're in this country. You have the right to be in this country. Everyone has a right to be heard. Um, and I, I'm going to listen respectfully. Uh, and I'm not going to call you names. And then we get to a four. And at least when yeah. it comes to the political, yeah, yeah, I hear that <laughs> sigh. Like, this just feels like where most people are most of the time, at least, at least when we're talking about the political conversations mm -hmm. that are happening on social media. And this is where I just have to tell you, Matthew, this is where it can be a little bit painful when people say, I want to do this. Give me the scale. I love this stuff. And then they look at a four and go, wow, I did that yesterday. <laughs> you know, and, and sometimes, um, it, you know, we believe that we're better than people. I have a nickname for you and it's a terrible nickname for you. And I'm going to attack your background, your belief, your commitment, your competence. And, and I, I just want to say that despite you know, kind of how painful it is to realize that this is the first thought that you might have in the morning or when you hear something that's controversial. It might be the first thought you have, but then the language that you use and trying to change that thought in your mind by saying, you know what, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do it out loud. And I'm going to try and think of another way to think of that person. But it's sort of a slippery slope, right? And that slippery slope moves into these other areas. Three is where things start getting at least to me, this feels like where things go from manageable, although not preferable, to a little bit scary. Yeah, not only are you incompetent, but you're you're morally terrible. You are not just the other people, you're the bad people. And if you put this in a political situation, a problem-solving situation, which is what we use the index to to ease division, prevent violence, and solve problems. So in a problem-solving situation, if I go into that situation with the mindset that I'm the good person and you're the bad person, it's me versus you, and I can only win if you lose, well, it kind of shuts down a lot of opportunities. <laughs> a lot of you know things that you, uh, solutions that you might have come up with are all of a sudden off the board. Then we get to two, which takes us even another step further. It invokes a very stark word. That word is evil. And now we're not just talking about people making bad decisions. We're talking essentially about who they are intrinsically. And this is when you sink into violence. Three, it's us versus them. Two, it's us or them. They're going to ruin everything. They are a danger. They're evil. 
and two and one are, you know, very closely related because that's when the violence, you know, starts. That's when you start thinking about, yeah, it's okay. Violence is warranted because they are so evil and they will ruin us if we let them. We mentioned earlier the troubles in Northern Ireland in the 60s to 90s, um, also in the 90s, and this was mentioned in the Politico piece, you know, the Rwandan genocide started with invocations of violence in the media. But, you know, I'm a, I'm a college instructor. Uh, I, you know, a lot of my students don't recall the 1990s, but we don't have to go back that far, right? Like the invasion of Ukraine was precipitated on the denigration of people's humanities and, and accusations of evilness. This is something that's part of our world right now. So there's, there is reason to be afraid. It's not just think that this is something that happened in history, but could happen again. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, look at other examples, uh, politically motivated, I should say, violence, you know, the, the people that were at Judge Kavanaugh's home, the gentlemen outside uh, that broke into Nancy Pelosi's home, you know, both sides of the, the aisle here. I mean, those people are motivated by some type of a political um, injury or vendetta or you know, disagreement. And, and that's happening on a small scale and a large scale. You mentioned Northern Ireland, our, one of our consultants for this project, Donna Hicks, and she's quoted in the political article as well. And she teaches that the same portions of the brain will light up for physical pain and emotional pain. So she said a lot of times in these negotiations that she was called in to work on, um, it was obvious that a wound to someone's dignity was actually more painful than physical pain. And, you know, one of the, one of the things that, that she taught was that, um, that our longing, she says that our longing to be treated with dignity is a single most powerful force motivating our behavior. And that when you injure someone's dignity and have these dignity violations, the most common reaction is revenge. And, and so when you start looking at the scale, if you move up the scale in the five, six, seven, eight range, you're treating people with dignity. Their guard comes down. I'm not going to be motivated by revenge because your bill passed that I didn't like, or you think your approach to immigration is, you know, it's different than mine. You're going to have these conversations based on dignity versus on the lower end of the scale, which can often then spark this feeling or this need for revenge because you are violating my dignity. You and your team set out for this index to be a tool for measuring politicians, but when people learn it, they tend to use it in a very different way, don't they? <laughs> yes, they do. Um, as, as I mentioned earlier, I, when I started being, becoming involved with this part of our project, I could not help but look at my language and my first gut reaction to things. And it was this huge learning curve. And we, it's when I speak to people, especially in groups, it's like, okay, we're in group therapy right now. <laughs> I'm Tammy. I'm a divider. I use this language. I don't want to. I'm trying to do better. But recognizing that you have that tendency is really half the battle. 
And one of the things that we've thought about really strongly with this project is putting a label on what we're feeling, put a a label on the language that we see happening. Um, So when we can label certain phrases as contempt or certain phrases as being filled with dignity, once you put that label on it, it's like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. And I didn't realize that was me. I want to shoot for dignity. My colleague, Tom Roshert, talks about this a lot, is that we want to start a conversation and we want to have some common uh, terms, some common terminology. We want to understand together what contempt means and what dignity means and what does dignity look like. And I'm going to measure it. Let's start looking at where we see that in speech and see it in our own speech. And quite honestly, uh, the big takeaway from our Utah demonstration project and the student uh, gr- undergraduate graduate students that worked with us on the coding, their big takeaway was this was life changing for me. This really had me see things in a different way. You know, this really feels like something that could be, should be maybe taught in schools. Are there efforts afoot to translate this into curriculum for students? Well, to some degree, a lot of these skills are being taught through, again, social-emotional learning. Uh, One of the big skills that I think applies in social-emotional learning to politics and to our index is perspective-taking. You know, that's one of the most uh, commonly taught social-emotional learning skills, perspective-taking. I want to be able to take your perspective, and then I want to be able to learn to have empathy for your perspective. But that aside... We have had numerous people contact us and, and asking for a curriculum for K through 12. They've been asked for curriculum for university students, a module that they could put in gen ed courses. I'm in touch with a high school teacher that wants to use this in his AP government classes. I've been in contact with a university instructor that wants to use this in their debate courses. And so this is that we're entering the next phase of our of our project where we will be developing these types of materials. I'm not exactly sure what that will look like, but we have had requests to develop them for all levels of education, K through 16. We're having this conversation in the middle of Utah's part-time legislative session, which happens once a year around this time of year. Um, You've had the opportunity to chat with a lot of state legislators about the ideas we've been discussing here today, do you feel like you're getting some traction and and are you seeing signs of it here in your home state? The legislative session brings its own unique challenges. And while I've not spoken, I've spoken with a couple of legislators about this before the session started. Uh, I've not really had that opportunity during the session, but But again, the minute you start to look at applying this to other people and you're honest about it, you cannot help but retreat a step and say, okay, (laughs) let me step back and let me look at myself and let me see how I can have this, how I can have this conversation with an elected official with dignity. What can I pull in? You know, what are the similarities in opinion that we have and what are the differences we have now? How can I approach that person with a disagreement that I might have and have a conversation that's actually a productive conversation? One of the things that comes up often is I have to use contempt or I'm not going to win. 
And then we say, when's the last time that you had a discussion with someone and contempt bought you a lot of um, success? When did that win the conversation? And it's not very often that contempt gets you a lot of headway. And so even in the legislative process and even voicing my opinion on issues that I may disagree with, if I can pull that back and say, okay, let me pull up the scale. How could I say that in a way that honors that legislator's dignity and mine and helps him understand him or her understand where I'm coming from so that you don't automatically tune me out because I just called you an idiot, right? Which is well, a lot of times our strategy is, you know, you're a X, Y, Z and you're so terrible and you hate America and you, that's not going to win you any arguments or get people to open up their, their mind and their hearts to your opinions. So that's, I think that's how this can come into play during any type of legislative session or any time that we're speaking with elected officials. That's Tammy Pfeiffer. She is the Utah Demonstration Project lead for the Dignity Index. And you can find out more about the project and the index at dignityindex.us. Tammy Pfeiffer, thank you so much. Matthew, thank you for having me. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday on UPR and Thursdays and Sundays on KCPW. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our program is supported by a generous grant from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University and from public radio listeners like you. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.